everybody and welcome to another episode of the conversation of our generation my name is nick jamel i am the creator of the conversation of our generation the author of the blog for the most part i do have some guest blogs and the host of the podcast here at the conversation of our generation and i'm so happy that you guys are listening today i think i got a really good show i got a new format today that i'm launching and i hope you guys like it because i think it's going to work out really well i felt like i was droning on and on before on a, you know, on a topic and just kind of beating it to death. And instead, I want to mix it up and maybe approach like a topic or maybe two topics from a couple different angles and have those basically be a different portion. And I'll get into that when I get going. But I will be talking today about the education system. And I'm going to be talking about it from, you know, a political perspective. You know, I'm going to be talking about learning philosophically and then we we'll be talking about my a couple other things with my religious education what I how I looked at that from a religious standpoint and how literature is being taught today and in the in schools and I think that it'll kind of give you a good range of things on how I approach education in general but each one will be a different mode of analyzing the problems or you know or where education is doing really well. And I think that it's going to be really cool. I think that you guys are going to like this new format, but I want to get you guys to give me feedback. So if you want to give me feedback, go to Twitter at con of our gin. You can let me know there. My DMS are open. Please be kind. Um, Facebook.com slash conversation of our generation. My blog will be up. You can comment on the post on conversation of our generation.com anywhere that you can find me mines steam it. I'm there as well. Um, just let me know what you think, comment below, share it, DM me on Twitter, or yeah, I think you, could, you should be able to message the conversation of our generation on Facebook. I will say I have a lot of stuff that gets thrown into my message box on Facebook. They're kind of like meshed together. So sometimes I'm a little slow to answer there, but, or you can go to the contact portion of our, bo- of the blog, con- conversation of our generation.com slash contact. And let me know there as well. I want to hear what you guys have in mind for this and what you're thinking. See if it's a little bit more entertaining, a little bit easier to follow along with instead of just one giant glob of, um, of an idea. And I think it'll be really good. But I did not get rid of the quote of the week segment that is still here. So I'm going to be talking today about a quote by... Um, I really just went and found a random quote on Brainy Quote and... Just to see what it was like, just to see if I found anything that stood out to me, and one that did was, uh, it was by it's by Khalil Gibran, and it is you are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. And I thought that it was really interesting because I was going to be talking today about education, and you know, obviously the education system is focused on children and how to handle it, and I'll go into that more. But I thought that it fit in with that. And so I researched Khalil Gibran just to see who he was because I was not aware. And as a Lebanese person myself, I probably should have been because he's a famous uh, Lebanese writer who came to the United States. And I was looking into his uh, biography on Wikipedia, and it was interesting. He wrote in both Arabic and English. He was, you know, recognized uh, in just plenty of different American uh, awards and he is it says on his Wikipedia page that he is the third best selling poet of all time so he's right behind Shakespeare and uh, and uh, Lao Tzu or Lao Tzu the author of the Tao Te Ching and I thought that that was pretty incredible to see that because I didn't even know who he was and I mean I'm you know his he came over probably around the same time that my great grandpa did. And he also, funny enough, died on April 10th, which is my birthday. So just a lot of funny things that I found there. I'm going to be going through his works. I have the Wikipedia page pulled up so that I can go back through his works and find them later. But I just thought that that was a funny thing that I should share. Now I want to give him, give you my thoughts on the quote. And <laughs> so just to remind you what it is, it says, you are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. And I think that that's a great way to look at 
how to parent because we have this idea nowadays that I'm a helicopter parent and I have to protect my kid from every little thing. And it's like, no, you have to prepare your kid. You have to draw your kid back and have them ready to launch out into the world and become whatever they're going to be. You have to teach them things that you need to know to be a functioning adult. You have to give them the knowledge and you know the confidence by trial and error to you know grow their skill set and have confidence in their skills and their knowledge and allow them to become an, an adult on their own and it's you're the bow but they're the they're the arrow they're the thing that has to go forth from you you can't just hover over them their whole life and i think that that's a big issue that the you know the Gen Xers might have kind of had slash baby boomers in there of how they parented their kids was you know the baby boomers I think were so uh, for the most part um, not very involved parents because they were kind of that flower flower child generation you know yeah it's all good man whatever like the hippies the 60s you know all that that's the that's the baby boomers and then you have Gen X's, kind of their kids, you know, for the most part, maybe some older millennials could be children of the baby boomers-ish, but the the Gen X's kind of went the other way, and instead of that, they were like, I'm going to be all over everything, and so the millennials and kind of that Gen Z that's coming up do have a bit of a tendency to, you know, seem much more reliant on their parents than they should be for everything that America allows us to be like, you know, it's so easy. Now you don't even have to go have a car to go get to your job or anything like that. You can create a job on your phone. I mean, there's so much opportunity for that, but no one has that initiative. No one has that drive or that understanding to do that because they're not taught to go forth from their parents. They're taught to sit under their parents and, you know, stay their children forever. And I think that that is a, sad thing in my opinion because I think it's such an opportunity today to be innovative and go forth from all the knowledge that our parents could give us about life and just take that and run with it with the technology that's at our fingertips and use that to such our, to our advantage to do even more than was imaginable 25 30 years ago even and so I think that that is something that we need to remember as a society that we are supposed to send our children forth. We're supposed to put them out into the world and let them fly. And not in some silly hippy dippy sort of way, but in a real way. You're supposed to prepare them for life because someday, they're, no matter what, they're going to have to live without you. And I think that that is an important way of looking at things. Um, and so I, I just wanted to bring that to your guys' attention and kind of point out some funny little congruencies between this guy, uh, Khalil Gibran, who is a very well-known, obviously, writer that I was should have been more aware of. And so I learned something today. I feel like I should have known this. <laughs> Anyways, before I get into the main topic of today of education and kind of attacking that from a few different angles, I want to tell you guys again about We Do Better and the work that they are doing and that I'm doing with them as well. We Do Better is an organization that is trying to help charities connect the resources that they need in order to meet the human needs that they're trying to meet with their organization and with the mission that drives them and fuels them to be such a great solution in helping people in your neighborhood, in your community. And what I love about We Do Better is that it allows me to be active and ensure that I am going to be helping the people in my community, the people that I see, the homeless people on my streets right in front of me, and those people that I know need help because it keeps everything local. It keeps my contributions to charities in the area that I live and not going to some far off place or getting sucked away by you know government waste. Instead, I know that I'm giving to a charity that is going to be servicing people 
in my community and is doing so better than other solutions out there. So if you want to get involved, go to wedobetter.org and look around and see what great information there is there. There's plenty to look at. And then go to the contact part and tell them that you want to get involved. Or you can go to the Facebook page for We Do Better Indianapolis if you're in my area and let me know. Or search Facebook for your locality. Just We Do Better My City, My State, and see what's out there for you to get involved with. We'd love to have as much help as possible because we believe in this mission. We believe in what's going on with We Do Better because it's about we the people meeting the human needs in our communities and rallying around our community to make them better and to help people who really need it the best way possible and the most efficient way possible. And that's what it's about. So if you want to get involved, again, it's wedobetter.org. Go there and contact them and let them know that you want to get involved. And so with that, I want to get into the main topic today, but I also want to do just explain um, that I did mean to get this out on time, but the weekend for Labor Day was crazy for me. I had lots of family obligations and was not able to really plan out my podcast, and I kind of was reworking this idea, and so I wasn't able to get all my thoughts together, and so when I went to start recording, I had a few issues, and normally it's pretty a smooth process. I can kind of get in and out, and you know, obviously it takes me about an hour to record this, so I get up early do that and normally if the technology is all good I can get this podcast out but I did not have the ability to do that so I apologize for this being later on today and I thank you guys for understanding and this hopefully won't be happening anymore I'll try to be a little bit more diligent but with that let's start talking about education and education in today's world and Let's do it through a few, four different frames. And so I'm going to talk about this in four different ways. And the reason why I'm breaking it out this way is because I think that politics, philosophy, religion, you know, arts, you know, spirituality, uh, history, all these things need to be discussed in a certain manner. And they don't really always fit together. We kind of mesh them together sometimes. And I think it's good to be distinctive and to be clear when you're talking about things. And so I want to talk about these from each from a different angle and so that you guys can sort of understand where it is that I'm coming from on each uh, field of study, I guess, and how I can discuss them in different or the same topic in these four different ways. And so as far as the politics of it go, what I really wanted to discuss is how we can tie that quote of the week into the education system and how I think that we take too much of the onus off of the parents in the way that we teach kids in schools. And a large part of this comes from the fact that, you know, we now have a huge Department of Education which I would like to consider more like a department of indoctrination that basically just plans out everything you're going to learn forever. And instead of actually, you know, helping you to understand things, they just kind of, I don't know, they, they really just tell you what they want you to know and they really don't allow you to think critically like they say that they're trying to teach us to do. They instead just dumb everything down and make us skeptical of things instead. And I think that that's dangerous if you don't have parents involved because me growing up, my mom was a teacher. My dad actually had to get a job in sales instead of where he was working as the alumni director for the high school where I went, where he went and his uncles went here in Indianapolis. And his job was basically to help basically facilitate things with the alumni, keep them involved in the school so that because it's a private school, they go off a lot of donation as well as tuition. And when donations are good, they're able to keep tuition lower and do the Catholic thing and allow people who really can't quite afford Catholic school to come to Catholic school. It helps with that. And so 
from what I see politically, I see a way that you can allow schools to function well, because first of all, if you didn't have government schools, you wouldn't have subsidized competition of private schools that basically makes them have to compete on the with big government money because before the Department of Education, I mean, a kid in high school could work, save up a couple hundred bucks over a summer, which was a decent amount of money. My, let's put it this way. I couldn't earn enough money to pay for a semester or pay for a year in college or a year at my high school at full tuition by just working all summer. My composition teacher did so all four years of high school. Uh, while he was in the back in, I think he was there in the 60s. And he told us the story about how he just worked at a flower shop all summer and he saved up. He still was even able to have a little bit of spending money based on, you know, it wasn't even every penny went to this necessarily because it was much more affordable because it was also a, it was a school that was competing with every other school because you didn't really have the same type of heavily federal subsidized government schools that make all schooling more expensive and so it was much more affordable for everybody even in private schools back then and today that seems wild and crazy but healthcare and education are two of the fastest growing or you know two of the places where inflation has hit the fastest over the last like 30 years and it's because of they're the two most heavily subsidized industries um probably besides like corn, um, which has, you know, gotten a little bit more expensive than it probably should have also. But the issue is for me that the way that we approach this in politics is we don't think that it's, you know, the parent's job to ensure that their kid is learning in school, to ensure that they're, you know, involved in their child's education. My mom used to always double check with me that I did my homework. My dad did too. My mom would always read to me when I was a little kid because she knew as a teacher how important that was. She would quiz me on my math facts and knew that I needed to know my multiplication tables, you know, my addition and subtraction, division, everything. And I had to have that down pat because that's what was going to make me good in and algebra and other maths that are, you know, are just building off of that idea. And she understood that if I can't read one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, and some other Dr. Seuss, I'm never going to be able to read Shakespeare because it builds on itself. And so they took it upon themselves to get those things started for me early. What I see in a lot of education is instead of that, we just have this top-down idea where the government tells the states, you know, the federal government tells the states what the requirements are. The states teach to this test and they don't really care if the kids learn anything. They just want to make sure they have the score so they can get the funding. And the teachers are just told what to teach and they need to teach this test and their paychecks and their pensions and this and that are all tied to how well they teach to that one test. And it doesn't make any sense because it's creating a perverse incentive, in my opinion, to dumb down the curriculum in order to fit these weird standards and you don't allow people to really truly learn anything and you at the same time teach them in a way that doesn't inspire a love for learning. It doesn't inspire kids to go off and read on their own and discover new things. It really just says all learning is is to get through life and that's so dull it's so it's so boring and i think that the way that we should approach it is your parents should prepare you to look at education as an opportunity to grow and to become the person that you're going to be and so you should get the most out of every learning opportunity that you have and we should be structuring our schools that we put onus on the parents to be somewhat involved in ensuring that the child is learning and, and ensuring because here, okay. So, and I don't want this to be like a way that government mandates things. I, what I mean by that, I just want to clarify is that it should be up to parents to ensure that their children are doing things because in my opinion, Liberty is 
the idea that it is up to us to make the decisions to move forward and to improve our lives, not government to force it upon us. And what's happening right now is government is just force feeding kids things in the classroom and not allowing parents really to be involved in the education process. Because if you're in a public school, you really don't have a need as a parent for the most part to go unless you know your kid's involved in some extracurricular activity and you go to support them at their band show or their choir show or the football game or whatever. That's really all you get to do. In Catholic schools, as I came up, I mean, the parents were heavily involved. They helped run the school. (laughs) I mean, so it was not even a question of whether or not the parent was there and ensuring that their kids were educated because they were heavily involved in how we were taught and they knew the teachers and the teachers knew them. And, you know, you know, one teacher would have me and then she'd have my two little brothers after me. And so they had this rapport and they were able to say, Nick was really good at doing these things. And here's where Daniel could improve because he has these weaknesses that Nick didn't have, but he has these strengths that Nick didn't have. And they can compare us and tell our parents why we're being more or less successful at school. And to me, that's a much better way to give my parents feedback on how they should parent us and teach us or where they should be working with us because maybe they're seeing that my brother has a C in one class and instead of saying that he's just not trying, maybe he has a real trouble with foreign language and I didn't, but he's really kicking butt at English when I wasn't as good at that at the time and it took me a lot of work to get better at it. And that feedback that the teachers provided allowed my parents to teach us and be heavily involved in the way we were taught. And I think that that onus that they had, I'm glad that they took that on and took that seriously and made sure that we were educated well. But I think that that opportunity would not have existed in most public or like government education, right? And the reason why I'm passionate about this idea is I've seen this in action in, uh, in a charter school that I worked in. Uh, it was a former teacher of mine. He was began a charter school in Indy's uh, west side, and it was for underprivileged kids, and it was a way that basically the only way you could get into the school was if you have the parents say that they will be committed to their children's education. And a lot of the kids were Hispanic kids whose parents didn't speak English, and they maybe spoke broken English, the kids did. They had they spoke Spanish at home and the only time they spoke English was out in the rest of the world and you know so their parents maybe didn't even read Spanish let alone English some of them not all of them and then there was a lot of also inner city black kids I mean there was like I think three or four white kids that I could remember in the school when I was working there and it was definitely heavily minority heavily you know those people that are they were definitely their families were doing their best to give their kids better because they knew that this is their way to have a better life for their children because I, I definitely, it was definitely a poorer area. And I was passionate about it because I loved the fact that I was able to go and help people, kids who just needed one-on-one attention because they're at four, they're fourth graders and they're reading at a kindergarten level and they need that extra hour a day of just reading Dr. Seuss in order to get better at it because their classmates are, you know, reading a little history book on, you know, basic history stuff, but they're going through it and they're able to read and understand these ideas. I mean, they, you know, obviously have to have history a little bit explained to you, but they can read the story. And this kid could barely get through like a, you know, some, like more than Dr. Seuss, but not much more. And it was tough for him and he worked on it and he got a lot better and he made a ton of progress in the year and a half that I was there and he really caught up with his fellow students. He was a smart kid. He just was, no one ever took the time and I'm all for that. And his parents said he needs to be here because he needs this opportunity. And, you know, I think that's a great way to look at things. I think that we should not allow people to fail, but I don't think the government should be the one preventing people from failing. I think it should be us and our community picking up the slack like my teacher did I admire him for it of starting this school and saying he's going to take this on and be the one who 
helps the people who need it the most to catch up in education. I love that he did that. I think it was awesome. And I was glad to be a part of it while I could. And I think that that is how we should approach schooling politically. Like, that's a high-level idea of how we could reform this. I don't have any, you know, specific legislation that I'm talking about right now, but I definitely have ideas in mind for how we can take this on in our personal lives. And now, with that, I kind of want to move into the philosophical aspects of what I want to talk about because I think this is important and I, I'm not going to harp on this too long because I wrote a blog post on this recently called Objectivity of Truth. It's linked in the show notes if you want to check that out. And it is, I think, a pretty good post on it. But I wanted to kind of talk about this idea that, so basically the idea is objectivity is an unfeelingness or unbiasedness of, you know, it's it's basically a state of unfeeling. Objectivity means that you're, it's just cold. It's just, it is what it is. And it's not persuaded by perception or biases or feelings. And the reason why I say that truth has to be objective is because truth is this ideal of reality that it is verifiably true. It is something that is I don't want to use the word in its definition, but truth is the perfect description of reality, whether that reality is abstract or concrete in nature. So it could be the truth about God or the truth about what happens when you punch a wall or what happens when, or what, or the facts of a trial case, for instance, right? Those physically happen, you can look at it, or you could look at the nature of truth itself or God and that abstract, you know, understanding or mathematics and how do you describe that physically in a way that you can read and understand. And even the dictionary.com definitions have the word true in the definition of truth. And so I kind of think that's the best way to describe it the way I look at it. And the reason why that has to be cold and unfeeling is because for you to perfectly describe reality, you have to shed perception, you have to shed bias, and you have to shed your feelings about the truth that you uncover because anything that you impose upon the truth steers you away from it in some way. You have to look at it as objectively as possible without your... The only way that you can come to the truth is by being objective yourself. And to me, that reflects the nature of truth itself is that it is because it is unfeeling, because it is objective, you have to become that way in order to discover it. And just like in order to mine something out of the ground, you have to go underground and be down there where the mineral is that you're searching for. To find truth, you have to go to where truth is, that state of existence of object of objectivity. And you have to do that as best you can. And that's how I look at the idea of truth and why I think it's objective. The reason why I think this is important is I think in education, we have too much of a understanding that, or too, this idea right now that truth can bend to whatever we think or whatever we feel at the time. And that's what's true. And sure, your feelings are real. Your subjective reality is in some way real. You know, your consciousness is a real thing. And so the thoughts and the feelings and the pain that you have exists. That's true. But you can't conflate that with the objective reality in and of itself. So if I say that, you know... O.J. Simpson killed his wife, or you say that he didn't, we can both have our beliefs and our thoughts about it, but no matter what, something he either did or didn't kill his wife, and whether or not it says so in the courtroom doesn't make it so, right? The feelings of those 12 jurors on the case doesn't make it 
true or false either way. It does legally, right? You can't... Now, he's been acquitted in a court of law, but as far as what actually happened, that doesn't speak for it. Obviously, innocent men go to jail and guilty men get off. So that that collective feeling of whatever was going on there doesn't negate whatever happened or doesn't necessarily prove, based on what I can see, what actually happened. And so you have to understand that if you can look at it in a way that a group of 12 individuals acquitted a man who looks pretty guilty by all evidence and, you know, maybe he wasn't, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know the facts of the case that well. But in a place where things are supposed to be cold and justice is blind, right? She just sees the facts is all. She only knows the truth of what really occurred and she's blind to whatever circumstances there are. That was so influenced by a subjective nature that it's probably one of the more talked about cases because of how poorly it was handled from straying from objectivity. And that's a place that's supposed to be totally objective. And I think that we have that throughout our society where we're not able to communicate with each other because we can't decipher what is my feeling and what is my subjective reality, what is my perception, and what is actually true out there, what is the reality that I'm actually looking at. And it's like, uh, it's almost like if you and I are on different sides of like a mist and we can both see a rainbow, or maybe I can see the rainbow and you can't see the rainbow because of the way the light's reflecting, it's or refracting. You can't see it, but I can. That doesn't mean that the rainbow's not there to me. It just means that there's some other phenomena outside of this that there's a certain angle from where it appears. And if you came around to my side, you'd see it. If I came around to your side, I wouldn't. And that doesn't mean that it's not there because it's there if you look at it from one angle. But if you look at it from another, it's not. And it's like that, I saw a meme where it's like, Republicans and Democrats are both, it's a Republican and Democrat, they're pointing at a thing and it's a six or a nine on the ground, depending on which way you're looking at it. And one's like, it's a six. The other guy's like, it's a nine. And, you know, that's kind of how perception could, you know, influence you. But the fact of the matter is there's a right way to look at that thing to tell you whether it's a six or a nine in the, in all actuality and you to say that there's and, and now that's a tough example i think but <laughs> it's the way that we have to think about it is you can only look at reality from that objective nature and when you do that you find out whether that's a six or a nine because there's a certain way that you should approach that or look at that number at that time, right? Because if we're talking about the number that comes after eight, then if you're looking at it from the other way and you say that it's a six, you should know to flip that number in your mind and say, no, it's nine, because you're putting it into a perspective of some sort. You're grounding it in some sort of way that no matter what you look at at first, you should say, oh no, that shouldn't be six because I'm talking about the number after eight. And that to me, is how we need to approach education and we need to get this idea of subjectivity out because I think it's damaging our ability to understand reality and to decipher what is our perception versus what is actually true and what is actually in front of us. And it's going to hurt us because when you deny truth, it still slaps you because the thing is, if it's objective, if it truly is objective, then it's unfeeling. And anyone who doesn't follow what's true will feel the repercussions because no matter what we think about it, what's true is true. And so if you deny the fact of reality or of gravity, then, and you jump off a building, you're going to feel the reality no matter what you believe. If I go up and tell some MMA fighter that I can kick his ass, no matter what I believe about myself, he's going to beat the crap out of me if I, you know, if I get into a fight with him. And so it doesn't matter. And those are kind of, you know, a funny way to look at it. But if you're talking about the ideas of capitalism versus socialism, and which one works? Well, you know, capitalism 
gave us the most generous nation in the world that is and also the wealthiest nation in the world and socialism took venezuela from one of the you know best you know countries in their area in central and south america to a hellhole in no time and i know people are probably not happy about me saying that but i mean people are eating dogs in the streets and so it's it's and you can't get access to anything that you need i mean the richest down there are just you know living it up lavishly and almost all the population is starving to death and it's it's terrible what's happening and it's the same thing everywhere that if you're so everywhere you go that's the idea that capitalism provides wealth and opportunity and even for the least among the people it makes them wealthier than people in any place that's not capitalistic and in time it doesn't necessarily happen immediately but it does eventually and when we deny these kinds of truths throughout our lives when we would deny the truths that govern the laws of the universe the universe is not going to allow that to happen and i would say it's god but this cosmos that god's created that we live within in our material world it has rules and it has order and if we don't abide by those then that order will work against us because you it's like if you just you know if you don't follow the rules in school you get detention and you have all these things but if you just follow the rules you get a good job you do well in life and all these things because you i you know i do think that the education system could be better but regardless it does well enough to get you a you know, a six-figure job or four, or, you know, at least a five-figure, mid to high five-figure job if you go all the way through it and you're decently smart about it and you do your best to learn things about taxes and business and finance outside of school because they don't teach you that there. And if you do that right, then it makes you real good at, you know, how to pay for college and how to do all these things and build wealth. And if you have a decent job, if you're making $55,000, $60,000 a year, it doesn't sound like a lot, but you could retire a millionaire if you're smart about it. And if you go to school and you get a high school degree, you should be able to make that, really. I mean, if you do it right. And people can get mad at me for saying that if you can't, but I think that you should be able to, just about most people, if you really put your mind towards it. And so when we deny these things, we set ourselves back. And I think that is something that's important for us to understand. And that's why I think it's important for us to recognize the objectivity of truth and why it is that way and why we need to remember that. The next part here, I really want to talk about my religious education and why I think it was a very good thing for me personally and why I think that it's something worthwhile uh, for other people to look into. And it's because in my upbringing, so the Catholic Church has an order of brothers called the Holy Cross Brothers. And one of their big things is education. You should probably know them. Uh, you know one of their schools, it's Notre Dame, is a Holy Cross school. And we were actually started in, as a sister school to Notre Dame. We Our colors for my high school were blue and gold uh, because we had their old hand-me-down uniforms. And we were actually the Fighting Irish before they were. They were the Notre Dame Ramblers, when we were calling ourselves the Fighting Irish, they kind of took the name from us. Um, and our, their leprechaun was drawn by one of our grads and first appeared in our school paper. So just for all you Notre Dame fans out there, just so you know. <laughs> and so what the brothers, though, their main tenant was with education was they educate hearts and minds. And now they have other things that go along with this. There's a lot to their thing, but this is the one thing that sticks out to me the most, because to me, educating the heart and the mind is both teaching skills and knowledge, but teaching understanding and empathy, and teaching the philosophy and everything that goes on uh, in history and science that we need to know about, but also teaching integrity and character and virtue, and this isn't a new idea i mean even people who weren't christian like aristotle spent a lot of time talking about virtue and ethics and morality you know a lot of philosophers ask these questions and i think that the ideas of 
religion actually are extracted out of the questions, the idea, not not the other way around. It's you don't get the morality from first like presupposing this idea of God necessarily. I think that you actually get the idea of the one true God out of supposing that there is morality and in an in order to the world and purpose to things and purpose to behaviors. And Aristotle would agree with me on that, I think. And so this idea is something that is not just a Christian or Catholic idea. It's something that was just a traditional one that everyone should be educated to know things and to be smart and to be intelligent, right? And they should also be educated to be a good person because you have to be taught how to be a good person, really, in some sense of it. I mean, I think you can probably not teach someone to not kill somebody and they could do that, but I don't think you could teach someone, not teach someone virtue and they would become virtuous. I don't think that's the case. I think that there's too many temptations and there's too many impulses that if you don't teach people how to refine themselves, they don't. And so, because even sloth, for instance, is is a vice because it's being stagnant when everything else around you is moving forward without you. And so you're putting yourself behind. The reason why it's evil is not because necessarily you're taking those steps in the wrong direction. It's because you're not taking the steps forward. You need to be constantly moving forward in both learning and understanding and also virtue and integrity and morality. And that is... I think the way that the Holy Cross brothers are teaching a lot of the kids that are in their school, or the all the kids that are in the Holy Cross schools. I experienced it in my education. Um, I didn't really have the words to put to that from just my general Catholic education before it, but I think that it was present in my grade school as well as I was coming up that we are not just going to teach you to do reading, writing, and arithmetic. We're going to teach you to be a good kid. We're going to teach you about God and about, you know, how to be a servant to others around you, how to, you know, I, I did service hours all through middle school. I spent a lot of time. We did more than just canned food drives. I mean, we went out and took sandwiches to the homeless, shook their hand, and talked to them. And to me, I think that that's something that educated my heart so much more than just doing a canned food drive and sending it off to the food bank because I had to, I empathized with the person that I was helping and, and I think that it puts that into so much more perspective and it gives you a sense that's so much deeper than simply shipping off a, or writing a check or shipping off some food does. And I think that really meeting the people and empathizing with them is key to showing people really that human aspect, that that true connection that isn't quite described. You can't really quite describe what it is because it's just so innate to the human condition that we have that connection to others in our community because we're we're codependent on each other. I mean, I can't do everything myself to live. I need other people in my community to specialize in other things that I'm not good at and all that. So we need the others in our community. And the more you can expand who that is, the more you can empathize with other people by seeing people in these conditions that we talk about of homelessness or the hungry or whatever it is, you know, people who are mentally handicapped, people who are, you know, physically handicapped or whatever it is, people are just down on their luck, right? If you can meet these people and work with them and find ways to empathize with an individual, you can understand it then when it's someone else, when it's another person who's outside of your sphere, your community, or maybe someone else who you haven't worked with yet, you can automatically just hop into that place where you're like, I know, I don't know your exact position, but I know how to empathize with you and understand where you're coming from because I've heard it before in a way, you know, it's it's not perfectly individualized to them, but you understand 
the plight and you understand the feelings that people have generally in that position and you don't have to come in without any understanding. It's like doing a little bit of prospecting on a sales prospect. You know, you kind of know who they are and who they're connected with and you kind of have some basic conversation ideas if, you know, it just kind of goes flat or goes cold on you. But you don't know exactly where that conversation is going to go. You don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you have a baseline idea to start from and and a baseline idea of how to personalize your pitch because you kind of know what their business does and what they, you know, et cetera. It's like that. When you've empathized with people in the past and you've really dove into these ideas with other people, you find a way to translate that to other people who you haven't met yet or who you're going to meet. And I think that, or who you'll never meet too. And I think that that is an important way of remembering that it's we need to educate our hearts and our minds. And I think that that's a great thing that's happened to me in religious education. Why I vouch for it is because I think it gives you something that's so much more powerful than just, you know, the government indoctrination system does, or even good public, you know, government schools that really do teach you the right things and get you prepared for life. There are plenty that do that, I'm sure. But or, you know, non-Catholic private schools. I think that thing, that, or sorry, non-religious, I should say, private schools, that they don't really bring that aspect that creates a holistic education because I think that it's important to be taught ethics and virtue along with business and history. And it's definitely a thing that's missing in our education system a lot of places and it's something that I think put me ahead in life personally and with that one last thing that I think put me ahead in life and this is not really connected to necessarily where I was educated but just having good teachers because I think that there's private schools that don't teach this way and there's public schools that probably do but and I don't think it's really a correlation there necessarily but it's literature and I think one thing that is taught poorly is literature today because I remember in eighth grade I don't think I really read Romeo and Juliet yet because I mean it kind of goes above your head I read it freshman year I think for school and it was still kind of when I'm reading it tough to understand and I had to go to class and listen to the discussion in class to kind of fully understand it because it's written in weird way of speaking obviously this you know a lot of the words they have to provide context for and I had you know a book that had like on one page Shakespeare and then on the other page like footnotes all the way through and I was just too lazy to go through all the footnotes myself personally um so that probably would have helped me understand it better but we don't teach Shakespeare because a lot of times even like at all like or go through it or we dissected in this way that it wasn't meant to be read in the first place that it's almost lying to people about what he's saying and I think it's interesting because to me when I read Romeo and Juliet when I read Othello it's it's understanding these complex universal truths and distilling them down into this thing that you can understand because it's written from it's a story of an individual. And you so you distill that universal truth down to a way that I can kind of digest it because it's such a big thing to understand that you almost have to give these real world examples, just like, you know, Aesop's fables to teach you, you know, how to share and this and that as a kid, maybe, you know, Shakespeare teaches you how to be an enlightened human being and so do so many other authors i'm just using him as an ex as a for instance because i think he's such a great and what he did was so great that any one who goes against that is i think almost degrading themselves in their own education in doing so even if they know that whatever they're saying about it is not true or is inaccurate and I think that you see this too with Huckleberry Finn, uh, you know, being banned places and other books like that. I remember reading Huck Finn in school and I remember reading uh, 
another book, uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, in grade school. And the both of those times, I my teacher was like, I will not skip over any words. Or like, if the words offend you, I'm going to say them anyways. And or because that's what the way it was written, because that's the the language that was used at the time. And it's, you know, I think when you just don't say, I'm not going to say the N word on my podcast because I don't want to say that. But when you just don't say that in the discussion of this literature, I think it, and you don't have to force people to say it, but I think it neglects the history of what these works are trying to, you know, portray and the pain and the anguish that you kind of see if you just kind of gloss over that. You really defile the art. It's like, you know, if you just, if you take like Greek art where they have the sculpture of the human body and you chip off, you know, any genitalia because you can't see that it's gross. It's like, no, that's what the art is, right? It's, 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 you can't just like take off the, you know, I think the David has a penis, right? I, I don't know if he, they gave him like the, you know, I forget where they round it off and they, it's not there, but I think he does. If you chip it off, it's like, what are you doing? Or like, um, if you go back and, you know, put black sensor bars over, you know, the angels that and the paintings of the chapel in Sicily, uh, the Sicilian chapel, right? You're degrading what that art was because it expresses something. And the literature is the same way. There's a certain thing that, or a certain truth that they're trying to convey, or there's a certain scenario in their time, especially with like Huckleberry Finn, that Mark Twain was trying to talk about with, you know, really very critically. He was very critical of slavery, <laughs> actually. And he used this as a way to show how bad it is, how stupid the N-word is, how stupid slavery is, and how bad of an idea it is, right? That's what Huckleberry Finn is all about. And when you don't teach that because, you know, it uses the word that was used at the time, then that's going to go against what it's supposed to express and what it's supposed to teach us. And now I'm not saying that you have to force every teacher who's not comfortable using the N-word to use the N-word. Like, I'm not using it on my podcast because I don't want to mark this as explicit. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to answer for that. But, and I don't think it's a good word to use. But I do think that there's art in which it's used that it's important to understand why it's there and to understand that it is there and to remember why this word has the stigma that it does. I mean, that to me is the most incredible thing is the same people who are railing against racism are afraid to teach what it was, what racism was, you know, to really dive into how horrible it was. To me, the best way you can teach people that racism is horrible other than like, you know, just talking to people of other races, obviously, is a great way to understand it because you'll realize that they're a lot more like you, but is to go back and read Huckleberry Finn and see how stupid not only did the critic of the time think it was, but how stupid it really looked because they portray he portrays it pretty accurately, what it was like. And it's kind of a satire, but it's like, you know, it's the same kind of satire that we have today of our own culture. You know, it's kind of like it's funny because it's true. <laughs> and 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 I guess it wasn't, you know, Huck Finn isn't terribly hilarious, but there are some funny parts. And because it's like this kid who's trying to understand this horrible thing. He's like, well, this doesn't make any sense why you do it. And, he's, you know, why, why, why is that that way? Why is that that way? And he's like understanding how stupid slavery is as a kid, basically. And I think that when you teach it through that eyes, it's it's such a great metaphor that you should look at these things with like this childlike way and with the but a pragmatism too. He's a pragmatic kid. He's he's not you know like Huck Finn or not Huck Finn uh, like Tom Sawyer who's kind of aloof and just goofy. You know he's Tom Sawyer's your typical kid. Huck Finn's like that kid that's like grown up way too fast, right? And he has to think pragmatically because his dad doesn't take care of him, so he had to take care of himself. You know. And so he looks at the world that way. And when you tell that story through that eye and you see how it comes out, I mean, that's incredible. And there's so much literature that's, I think, defiled by the people who teach it that I'm so happy that my teachers really taught it 
with a strict adherence to what the authors meant. Like we had to go through and like defend it line by line why we believed the author was saying what we thought they were saying. And to to show that the meaning or these motifs or pulling out themes and whatever it is we have to we had to provide evidence we had to understand who the author was and what they kind of believed before we even ever read the book we would go through a lesson on that so we understood the context we understood the hist like when, when this takes place in history and why what's going on around them that influences their work and if you don't have all that in context you can't understand the literature and it does seem silly sometimes like if you if huckleberry finn was written today about you know, what, you know, about going down I-70 or, you know, going down I-65 to the, from north to south or something like that, it, it wouldn't make any sense why Huck is the way he is and why Jim is the way he is, right? But because it is in the time when it was, you get what the author's trying to portray. And I think that that's how we have to understand literature is that it's written in a time and place just like a song is, you know, written and sung in a time and place and about certain things. And art was painted or sculpted in a certain time and place about a certain object or person or event. And when you put things in context and the, you know, the artist's views on life or their understanding of the world, you can be more critical of what their art is because you understand everything about it. And I think that's so important. And I wish more people were taught more people were taught that way. And with that, I want to thank you guys for listening to the show. I hope you guys like the new format. If not, let me know. If so, also let me know because I want to get your feedback on what I'm doing here. So if you want to let me know, go to conversationofourgeneration.com slash contact. You can drop me a line there. You can go to facebook.com slash conversation generation. Message me, leave a comment on the post. You can leave a comment also on the blog. You can message me at uh, t- on Twitter at Conovargen is my handle there. And just, I want to hear your feedback. I want to know what you guys are thinking. And I also want to get you guys guest blogging too some more so that we can push out different ideas and different content from different perspectives. Because I do think that I don't have the f- sole perspective on the truth. And every now and then, my bias and my feeling and my perspective gets in the way of me getting to that objective truth, right? And... I think it's good to have some other people's ideas to bring that other perspective that maybe I'm looking at a six thinking it's a nine and someone else can show me the error my way, right? So please let me know if you guys want to get involved that way. I hope you do. And again, thank you guys for listening to the conversation of our generation and have a good week.